0: Next Tuesday, Michael Turner will be lecturing on the stirring events taking place in conservation at the Bodleian Library over the past ten years since he's been head of conservation at that library. This evening, Alistair Johnston, who is uh, the co-proprietor of a press known as the Poltroon Press, and I don't think that the word naughty is in my vocabulary very often. The Poltroon Press is a naughty press, and the world is very much better for it. It's a pleasure to have him here tonight lecturing on 19th century American type specimens. 19th century, 19th century English language specimens. I take it that naughty is K-N-O-T-T-Y? Well, I propose to um, bore you for about a half hour by reading you sections of my forthcoming Magnus Opium, on the subject, and then uh, show you some slides to alleviate the, uh, the headache towards the end of the talk. And um, Terry was asking me uh, whether this work is going to be as unscholarly as my other <laughs> efforts. And uh, I was trying to explain to him that um, my approach to 19th century type specimens is different from that that has already been taken by the real scholars Of the field, people like Niccoli Gray and Rob Roy Kelly, who have been studying the specimens to extricate a history of the development of the forms of the types. But um, I wanted to find my own reason to look at these magnificent books. And uh, being of a poetic sensibility, you might say, I decided to examine type specimen books from the point of view of their content, their literal content. Why was it that nobody had actually really looked at these books as works of literature? Was it that they just seemed like nonsense? And if so, you know, why wasn't that reason enough to start to examine them? And um, I found a great quote in uh, Borges' Library of Babel. This much is already known. For every sensible line of straightforward statement, there are leagues of senseless cacophonies, verbal jumbles, and incoherences. And I think that really sums up what's going on in the 19th century type founder specimens because although there is this very necessary um, role of the type founder to set out his types in a logical manner to demonstrate to the printers how they can use those types, they also have this irresistible urge to send it up and to parody the way that printers use the types to take the, uh, the everyday newspaper heading and to turn it into something really uproarious and scandalous. And um, looking at them now, you can see that very often they were composed extremely haphazardly. They're full of typographical errors. But there's an incredible thread running through them that really gives you a true mirror of the times, the subconscious voice of the compositors who are concerned with all of their everyday concerns, you know, their alcoholism, infidelity of their girlfriends, uh, r- sudden redundancy, and so on, are really present in all of these works from both England and America. And I've, um, 10 years ago, I came here to Columbia and spent a week looking through the ATF collection. And then uh, on a subsequent visit, um, on a tri- trip to London, was able to look through the specimens in the same Bride collection there and found other threads running through the English language specimens. So um, I'm going to share with you some of those of those thoughts. And probably... When you think about type specimens, type specimen books, the thing that first comes to your mind is Quo Usque, Tandem, abutere, Catalinem, Patienta, Nostra. Those turgid lines of Cicero's that were first introduced into a type specimen by William Caslon I in his broadside specimen of 1734, which was his big a splash breaking into the type market, and actually he really changed the course of of type design in England, and everyone else chose this particular quote of Cicero, and it achieved a totemic status for the printers. They all had to use it, and it begins with the capital Q, which is one of the most neglected letters of the alphabet, and printers after Caslon began to focus on this Q putting on these incredibly curly and attenuated tails until finally Bodoni just broke it off into that horrible little tadpole tail on the Bodoni letter. Um, But there was a hidden reason behind Caslon's decision, and that is that Latin has many more consonants than vowels and has very few descending and ascending letters compared to English. And I think it was... um, Hansard, who let the cat out of the bag, who started to, um, yeah, here's a quote from Hansard, who who gave away the secret. Perhaps this equivocate, how long, etc., i.e., how long Cataline, will appear the best reason that can be given for supposing that no new specimen of type can be exhibited but by this scrap of Latin, which contains about the very worst selection of characters that could have been chosen to exemplify the perfection of a fount. The proportion of vowels and liquids to other letters is much greater in the Latin language than in the English, and it must therefore be a fallacious mode of making us duly acquainted with the relative elegance and order of the various forms of types adapted chiefly for our own language. And Hansar then quotes Dibdin, the great um, reverend Dibdin, to uh, deliver the, the coup de grace, and he says, the Latin language, this is Dibdin, either written or printed, presents to the eye a great uniformity or evenness of effect. The M and N, like the solid sirloin upon our table, have a substantial appearance, no garnishing with useless herbs or casing and coat of mail, as it were, to disguise its real character. Now in our own tongue, by the sight of this M and N, or a T at no great distance from it, comes a crooked long-tailed G, or a TH, or some gawkishly ascending or descending letter of meager form, which are the very flankings herbs or dressings of the aforesaid typographical dish, M or N. In short, the number of ascending or descending letters in our own language, the P's, L's, Ths, and sundry others of perpetual recurrence, rendered the effect of printing much less uniform and beautiful than in the Latin language. And then he finishes up, Caslon, therefore, and Messrs. Fry and co. after him should have presented their specimens of printing types in the English language and then as no disappointment could have ensued, so no imputation of deception would have attached. So that was that was dibbed in letting the cat out of the bag, which I thought was very interesting. So um, unfortunately, everyone did continue to use that same horrible piece of uh, Ciceronian wine. And um, Cicero, according to Montaigne, had a, had a nasty disposition. And this is known because he always wrinkled up his nose. Um, but as the types became bigger and larger, with the introduction of of advertising and marketing, and this is you know part of the industrial revolution taking place at the beginning of the nineteenth century, um, the founders are cutting new and larger types, and so they had to find shorter texts to display their their types in, and so they couldn't use the um, the Ciceronian formula. So for the larger sizes of the type they would set them up in mock coaching cards and a coaching card was placed in the window of an inn and it would state the destination so if you wanted to get somewhere you would go to an inn and it would say brighton and then you'd know that the coach to brighton would stop there so you'd go in and have a few drinks until the coach showed up so they would set up these mock coaching cards and um... they would also set up larger words but the choice of words was invariably something along the line of man mun men, meant. So while they were English words, they were definitely in the category of typographical sirloin alluded to by Dibden, And um, there wasn't really much getting away from this. And occasionally a little witticism creeps into it, like uh, Blake Garnett, who have a coaching card that says remote at more, which I really like. It's sort of, it's sort of a near anagram. And um, the larger sizes of types would only be one word to a page. And that would be, say, 16 lines pica, which is about, let's see, six into 16 multiplied by three. I'm not sure. It's about (laughs) four inches high. Um, As the types got smaller, they would have two words, then three words. So you get this kind of Dadaistic cut-up poem. Uh, One example from the New England type foundry right after the colonial war is qua, model, man, arms, aim, come, men, male, am, shot. So if you read... if you read these books you start to understand what's going on and the the uh, subconscious voice of the compositor is coming through in this strange disjointed but nevertheless very telling fashion giving you a uh, an insight into his um into his subconscious mind and uh, here's one from kazlan oh ha mo mr Tu some pretty soon the founders, uh, I think Thorgood was the one who started it, would start using fragments of words or nonsense syllables. Riz, Mat, Mez, Hone. And Thinking about this, I realized that the beginning of the 19th century was the time at which the uh, British in particular were going off to Persepolis and other parts of the world and digging up fragments and coming back to London and laying out these fragments and trying to decipher them and the newspapers were always publishing little scraps of, of half-deciphered poems and half-understood half things. And I think there was a general mania for this kind of uh, acrostic mentality that, that led to this uh, reflection in the type specimens of the sort of fragmentary language. Um, and then as the, uh, as the poets or the typographers got more uh, adept at it, we start to see minimalist, true minimalist poetry. Uh, you know, a one-word poem that says something like, "gas." is a good example, or uh, a comment on the, the tendency to boldface types, quit. So, but um, in the smaller sizes of type, the printers found that they had to do something other than just keep repeating this Ciceronian whine, which was really beginning to grate on everyone's nerves. So the next alternative was to start to approach something like a history of printing, or articles about the origins of printing now although this was four hundred years almost after the introduction of printing nobody really knew how printing had started there was something known about this family called the gutenbergs and the fact that the gutenbergs used wooden blocks and that gutenberg had a son-in-law called Fust, who was probably in league with the devil so it's all very very nebulous and very very suspect and and thinking about this there's no wonder because Paranoia is one of the shades that has always attended the art of printing, and printers are very secretive, even to this day, and very, very furtive. Um, But nevertheless, historical passages would would be set up, and they would say things like this one from Vincent Figgins, um, talking about the invention of printing, or as he calls it, the discovery. The consequence of this happy and simple discovery was a rapid series of improvements in every art and science and the general diffusion of knowledge among all orders of society." So they all start to pat themselves on the back. But then he goes on to describe how the clergy initially ascribed the invention to the devil. Books were written with the blood of the victims who devoted themselves to hell for the profit or fame of instructing others. Uh, Richard Austin, one of my favorite uh, type founders, and I'll be showing you some of his work in a minute, had this paragraph The art of printing was invented by the Gutenbergs at Mentz about the year 1450, who used types cut in wood, but all authorities concur in admitting Peter Schoffer, their son-in-law, to be the inventor of cast metal types. And we may suppose the whole art of letter-founding is he produced an alphabet of matrices and cast metal types. Printing and type-founding was first practiced in England by W. Caxton, an Englishman in 1471. Very vague, although it's nice to see Mrs. Gutenberg getting a little uh, credit in there for once. Um, And then they would have things like Schoeffer was the first founder, You know, very, very uh, declarative statement. Where they got this information from, nobody knows. Here's a great one from, uh, from William Thorogood. The invention of printing took, part, took place in the early part of the 15th century, and it long remained an undetermined point concerning the place where and the person by whom it was then discovered. The best authorities placed the event between the years 1440 and 1450, good guess. It was a long controverted question by many learned antiquarians whether Gutenberg or Faust was the inventor of the art, till happily the original instrument was found by which it appears the former only associated the other with him for the sake of their purses, he not being able to proceed without, on account of the great expense attending the cutting of blocks of wood, which after they were once printed from became entirely useless for any other work. This instrument, which is dated 6 November 1455, is decisive in favor of Gutenberg. The honor of inventing single types made of metal is ascribed to Faust, wherein he received much and valuable assistance from his servant and son-in-law who invented the punches, matrices, etc. And then later on in the same book, Thorogood, this is um, from about 1820, 1824, I believe. Of all the discoveries which have been made, we conceive the reflecting mind will admit that none have tended more to the improvement and comfort of society than that of printing. In truth, it would be almost impossible to enumerate the advantages derived by all professions from the streams of this invaluable fountain, this mainspring of all our transactions in life. It was justly said by a celebrated writer that were the starry heavens deficient of one constellation, the vacuum could not be better supplied than by the introduction of a printing press. So we're going to have this new constellation in the stars based on a printing press. Um, and then for a little variety, we'd in a historical paragraph about uh, Cataline, of course. Who else? Something along the lines of, Lucius Cataline was descended of an illustrious family. He was a man of great vigor, both of body and mind, but of a disposition extremely profligate and depraved. So there's a lot of these very, very uh, querulous comments about the introduction of printing. Uh, here's one. That's uh, Vincent Figgins. The art of printing, says Dr. Knox, in whatever light it is viewed, has deserved respect and attention. From the ingenuity of the contrivance, it has ever excited mechanical curiosity. From its intimate connection with learning, it has justly claimed historical notice. And from its extensive influence on morality, politics, and religion, it has now become a subject of very important speculation. And speculation is really the key word there because they're all just glossing each other's work and they're... they're, uh, The certitude of their assertions is only reinforced by this, you know, by the fact that they're just robbing one another. And then they'll launch into poetry. What light is yon that shines so bright? Behold the press from which pure fountains spring. Or letter founding and printing are the twin professions which contribute most to the luxuries of literature. Okay, well, there's a couple more of these, um, which if you bear with me, I'll read to you. Uh, since it's easier for me to read them to you than to show you slides and have you read them. <laughs> Here's one from Montreal-type foundry, and this is, this is as late as 1849. And uh, right around this time, there was some real serious study going on into the origins of, of printing, uh, particularly the great exhibition of 1851 caused this whole revamping of British printing history in the first biography of, of uh, Caxton. Um, but in 1849, they're still coming out with these really waffling uh, paragraphs. By means of the printing press, man may speak to all kindreds and tribes and peoples and tongues, and make his voice be heard with simultaneous power beyond the Atlantic waves and upon the shores of the Caspian Sea. That's assuming you speak the language, I guess. And admit the population of Europe. Nay, he may speak to accumulating generations after death with all the freshness and force of eloquence. Printing gives to man a sort of ubiquity and eternity of being, It enables him to outwit death and enshrine himself amid a kind of earthly immortality. His words that breathe and thoughts that burn are enshrined and embalmed, and with him thousands hold profitable or hurtful communion till time is no more. If then we are loudly called upon to be careful what we speak and what we do, we are doubly warned to beware what we throw into the press. And invest with the power to endure and strength to pass every sea and to visit every people. It is to this we are indebted for the promulgation of the arts and sciences and for every other social and intellectual blessing. In short, it may be asked, what is there that tends to improve the moral and physical condition of man that is not fostered by the all-powerful energies of the press?" But later on in the same book, Montreal Admit, the history of the art of printing is enveloped in mystery. This art which commemorates all other inventions, which hands down to posterity every important event, which immortalizes the actions of the great, and which above all extends and diffuses the word of God to all mankind, this very art has left its own origin in obscurity and has given employment to the studies and researches of, and we'll never know what, because this is a typical thing of all these founders. They'll give you a paragraph and it runs off the end of the page and you turn the page and it doesn't continue. Or the alternative of that, is they'll start in the largest type with something that says the invention of printing and then you'll turn the page and it'll be a slightly smaller type and it will say the invention of printing was an event and you turn the page in the next smaller size the invention of printing was an event of the greatest possible consequence to mankind and it's like that children's parlor game you know the fireside game where you try and remember whatever everything the person before said and then you add a bit and the next person has to repeat the whole thing and there's a great specimen um not of a type foundry but of a printing office joseph Aston of Manchester, 1808, there's only one known copy in San Francisco Public Library. There's also only one known copy in the world as well as the only known copy in San Francisco Public Library. And by the time you get to the end of this little parlor game, and it's incredible because there's a comma about every four words, whether it makes sense or not. So you get the sense of this sort of handing on. It goes like this. The invention of printing was an event of the greatest possible consequence to mankind, the son of knowledge, comma, then burst the thick clouds of ignorance and superstition and diffused its cheering light upon the world. Typography became the star, comma, which pointed out the way to science, away, comma, which, comma, till then, comma, had only been trod by the few whose riches had commanded, comma, or whose devotion to seclusion, comma, had procured them access to the manuscripts which contained all the remains of the learning of the preceding ages. So all that, you know, <laughs> and what are they saying? What are they telling us? Precious little. Um... But an interesting thread to follow is this uh, attribution to the devil as being behind the invention of printing, which is, of course, we know from the uh, the very earliest attempts of, of printers to get uh, get work from the church. And here's one from the Oxford Printing Press, London, 1852. Faust had the policy to conceal his art, and to this it has been supposed we are indebted for the tradition of the devil and Dr. Faustus handed down to the present time. So that's great, um, great proof of... Uh, of the origins of the devil. Um, okay, I just uh, did some more research trying to find this uh, book called The Anecdotes of Hans*, which uh, I guess is a hoax, a printer's hoax. Um, one of the things that the printers did uh, starting around mid-century was to set up a book in sample facing page spreads from other books. Now, thinking about this, I decided that probably the type foundries were very busy, and they were getting commissions from publishers to set up and print books, or set up the books. Some of the some of the foundries were associated with printers. Uh, particularly at this time, 1846 in Edinburgh, there was a lot of really good type founding and printing going on. And um, so, it wouldn't be completely unexpected for a founder just to pull random pages from the books in the shop at that time and set them up and print them. So. As well as a little dose of Tandem uh, you'd get sample pages from the Bible, particularly to show small sizes of type, because everybody wanted uh, compact Bibles. Um, and then you would get samples of other books that were popular at the time, like Sir Walter Scott. So we get an idea of what it was people were interested in reading from the books that appear in the type specimens. Uh, very popular, Gibbon's Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire. In fact, in um, 1862 Figgins who were one of the most important foundries in London uh, started in about 1812 50 years later they put out a specimen of new book founds and the whole thing was composed in extracts from Gibbon's decline and fall of the Roman Empire all different sizes all different type styles so they were casting their vote over the Bible and certainly over the other kind of historical speculation and and, uh, Ciceronian wines that were were popular and um, other books that were quoted would be Shakespeare, of course, Scott, Burns, Byron, Johnson, uh, Dickens started to gain in popularity, and you can see these writers coming into prominence in the specimens. Jules Verne suddenly explodes on the scene and then sort of fades away again. Um, Guy Mannering seems to have been Walter Scott's popular book. It was published in 1815, and by 1840, there's still a lot of printers setting up facing sample pages or chapter openings from, from Guy Manoring. Um but my favorite of all is, of course, the type specimen consists of all different sizes of types, but they're not necessarily arranged in any order. Now, you think about um, the wonderful Mouse's tail. there it is on the wall, from Alice in Wonderland, where the types get smaller and smaller. Well, in 1847, the Glasgow letter foundry of McBrain and Sterling decided to do something with that idea of the dwindling sizes of type, sort of getting smaller and smaller and fading away. So they set out a historical smorgasbord of excerpts from Life of Newton, Life of Galileo, Life of Petrarch, and then a book of the Battle of Agincourt, something about the Battle of Bannockburn, and then the history of each nation getting smaller and smaller and smaller till the very smallest for which they reserve England. The history of England is four and a half point type, so that was great. But um, most of the Scottish founders would not so obviously want to alienate the, uh, the London market where they made their money. And there are two other things before I show the slides that I want to mention. And that is other strange uh, passions of the 19th century that I encountered going through the type specimens. One of them um, is for hermits. And if any of you have read uh, Edith Sitwell's wonderful book, English Eccentrics, she has a whole chapter in there called On Some Ornamental and Whistling Hermits. And apparently, uh, this is right after... Humphrey Repton and Capability Brown started to rearrange the landscape in this uh, kind of controlled chaos with uh, waterfalls and broken castles and caves, some of these rich English gentlemen decided, wouldn't it be nice to have a hermit living in the cave? And of course, there's plenty of unemployed people, so they would advertise in the paper. All you had to do was, was promise not to cut your nails or your hair or shave and just sort of dodder about in the landscape and live in seclusion, and you get your meals brought to you, and, you know, you'd have to wear these horrible sackcloth robes or whatever and, you know, either be quiet or scare the guests, depending on, you know, the, the temperament of the of the owner. Um, and apparently this was something that was, you know, actually... I don't know if Edith Sewell made this up or not, but you see a lot of type specimens advertising hermits and advertising for hermits. And that's something that really strikes me as funny. And then the other thing that you see a, a great deal of mention um, all through the 19th century is the lottery. And... Uh, I know you've have, you had have a lottery in New York State, you've had it for some time. Well, just recently they introduced a lottery in California, and it's, it's, it's hysterical, it's mad. They find every week, somebody wins a million dollars who's an undocumented alien who doesn't speak English. You know, he's either Vietnamese or Mexican or a Thai or something, and it's great. And they drag these people up, you know, and immediately they take the, you know, they're afraid to, first of all, show up, because they don't know if they're going to get arrested, and then they think, well, hell, you know, it's a million dollars, right? So... Then they get the money and they ask them through the interpreter, what are you going to do? And they say, I'm going home. You know, I got the money. <laughs> Goodbye. You know, Thanks. So um, the lottery was founded in, in uh, Britain in the 18th century to build the British Museum. They actually, that's, you know, altruistic, great, great uh, idea to found the British Museum. But then in 1826, after the British Museum was underway, they had to suspend the lottery because it was causing, you know, murder. Every week the lottery announced... And results came out, there would be mayhem in the streets. People would die. People would be getting cut up over bogus tickets and so on. So it was literally, it was a mad craze. And so the lottery, you know, the British are always ahead of the time. They finally said, okay, put their foot down. No more lottery. So um, the lottery appears very, very uh, frequently in the the specimens. And I'm going to be showing you some of those too. Okay. So let's jump into uh, the pictures here. And I want to start with some of the work of my favorite uh, type founder, Richard Austin. These pictures are a little yellow. I'm sorry, I took them uh, upstairs 10 years ago with available light, which was sort of watery neon. So um, they're not really the sharpest quality. But um, this letter, which is, um, as you see, 12 lines tight, or about two inches high in the original, Uh, They've chosen the word omen, and I can only assume it's because Austen sees what's coming, a very, very smart type cutter. Everybody had been copying the Baskerville letter um, after about 1757, and by the time this appeared in 1791 in the specimen of of Simon or Simeon Stevenson, and Austen had previously worked, cut the type for John Bell, it's now known as Bell. Austin realized that the trend in type design was shifting away from the old calligraphed letters towards a more modern emphasis. There's still the modeling that you get from a, a pen drawn letter, where if you take a pen at a 30 degree angle and turn it around a corner like that, you get this uh, increasing stroke width. But the emphasis is now horizontal and vertical, rather than the 30 degree axis that had prevailed in type design up to that time. And there's also this increased tendency towards contrast between thick and thin, which, of course, when the modern types came in after the turn of the 19th century, it became extremely pronounced. The uh, seraphs were no longer granted, and there no longer was this gentle, graduated modeling of the letters. So I think that Austin is saying here that this is the shape of things to come. And here's a coaching card. Um, It may seem to you that it refers to a bathing machine of some type, but uh, actually it's it's for destination in... um, in the s- southwest of England. And the very earliest display types were, in fact, just remodeled versions of the old obsolete stock. The, uh, the founders, rather than throw out their, their old stock, would take the punches, and they would get, presumably, the apprentice who was learning the craft to do something like scribble little decorative lines on them. And so the first display types in England were just revamped older types and they just had little inlines or incisions in the types. Sometimes they would take the Bold or Caslon style of letter, they cut a hairline, which would make the letter lighter, and then it would give it a little built-in drop shadow. Austin went on to cut a lot of types for his own imperial letter foundry, and then in 1822, he cut the types of William Miller, which still survive today as Scotch-Roman, or their Scotch-Roman types are based on these types. And you can see that the, that the Omen presaged this change has now been fulfilled and we now have this modern type that's uh, still has bracketed serifs, but there's a much stronger contrast between the, the uh, thick upright strokes and the thin horizontal strokes. And there's only a, uh, actually a 25% difference between a modern type and a bold type. A bold type has a stroke uh, width to height of one to, f- one to four, and a modern type has a stroke width to height of one to five. So it's a very slight difference that gives us that that distinction between what we consider bold types and what we consider the modern types. And this is one of his signature there, one of his woodblocks. He was also a wood engraver. He wasn't as good as as Buick, but he was certainly uh, one of the greatest type cutters of the the century. And this really appeals to me, this Austin page, or it's not set by him, but the type is by him, because of the constant typographical errors in the type specimen books. And Maine would be a destination not in England, but it would simultaneously refer to Maine in France and also Maine in America. And a lot of the market of the type uh, at this period was overseas to to France and America, although after the the War of Independence, there was a native type founding industry in America, albeit equipped with alien talent. People like um, Archibald Binney and and other people from Scotland, uh, George Bruce, uh, came over to this country and set up type foundries here. So they trained over there and then practiced over here. But these are the these are the very bold modern letters that are now coming into fashion after about um, 1816. And then here's a Kermit with a little touch of of Cicero too. And of course uh, he's worth a million two hundred thirty four thousand five hundred sixty seven pounds. That's a lucrative post. This is just to uh, help me brace myself. Here's the, um, a page from the uh, the Imperial Foundry of Austin showing the slab serif types which came into popularity after about 1819 with that remark that I read you about Gutenberg's cutting their type in wood and that their son was the inventor of cast full, full, full. You see this smaller size, you get a bit more of it up there. And here's uh, Bauer. Uh, Bauer and Bacon specimen from 1830 was some of the earliest uh, decorative or display types which were derived in large measure from sign painters lettering, from letters that were cut out in wood and mounted on shop facades. Um, and this gave the, the printers the inspiration for letters with little drop shadows. And then of course they would decorate them too. And here you see this idea I was talking about of taking the older, bolder types, although this is obviously not an older type, but a modern type, but the idea of revamping the type just by incising little lines into it. Here's another page from Blake Garnett of 1819, which has just the usual Ciceronian garbage up here, but it has this wonderful little poem at the bottom. Mean I looked at that and I thought, wow, that reminded me forcibly of... of, uh, James Joyce's Merk in, uh, in the Calypso section of, of Ulysses where um, Leopold Bloom feeds his cat and the cat has this very specific word that it says. And I think that this is a, a 19th century uh, person with the same idea of, in mind of the growling dog. And it's just tucked down at the bottom of the page and I guess that they're showing off the fact that they have this uh, lovely uh, italic with, it's a very heavy italic but it has these little scorpions. Uh, hollowed-out bowls. In fact, you'll see later on in a larger version of the type the, uh, this, what I'm talking about, the hollowed-out letters. Here's a, a Thoroughgood page with a sort of strange mixture of, of Kathleen uh, and uh, an auction notice. <laughs> um, and this... Thoroughgood was great in this weird juxtaposition. They become very, very dreamy. And um, he, uh, he's not a, a type founder. He was just an entrepreneur. And actually... Uh, the story goes that Thorn, whose foundry it was, started the Fan Street foundry, went broke, Thorogood won the lottery and bought the foundry. And so Thurgood is the one who's the most avid in promoting the lottery in his specimens. And um, so you always, he's always talking about money and wealth and success in the specimens, which is great. Here you see what I was talking about, the hollowed out, based on these bold um, modern letters, these, uh, these inclined, fat-faced letters. The Roman alphabet was never really intended to have these kinds of things perpetrated on it, this sort of emboldening or elephantiasis. And uh, consequently, the printers had to come up with with solutions to the problems. The obvious problem was the lowercase A, and so they invented the one-story A, which was a great solution to the problem of the the old A with the uh, two-story A with the little ball and the ball on it. And another thing they did uh, in the italic was to add these ball termini to the A and the N and then also to the Y, and there's one and the M there. They enliven the face considerably, I think. The, uh, if the letters are all like this, they tend to be monotonous and, and rather dull. Uh, unfortunately, the modern versions of these types are usually along the lines of this. The, the sort of bold bodoni that you get as sort of the standard offering from print shops uh, lacks this little added sparkle of humor in there. Here's a great, very dreamy combination of a coaching card and Cicero the angelic Who's square in Manchester? Can't wait to get on the coach. <laughs> I find out whatever it is is angelic in Manchester. And Thurgood is perfecting his art here, or his type cutter is perfecting his art, and showing his very, very large type here, 16 line pica, honing it down. And you can see the, uh, the unbracketed serif, which is characteristic of modern face, and then the total lack of transition between thick and thin. The exterior form of the letter remains the same. But the interior, you see, just becomes this sort of knife-edge panel in here. There's no attempt, except in the O, there's a little uh, gratuitous curl in there, but there's no attempt to give us any kind of uh, reasonable extrapolation of the inherent characteristics of the Roman letters in here. Uh, the E, particularly, is a, is a monstrosity. And uh, here's a giant slab, sir, 25-line pica. Most of the specimens are, are quarto, six by nine. Presumably, that was the... the the press sizes they had, and by the time the binder got through with them, they barely stay on the page. And this is very common to see type specimens with the words going off the page, and particularly in the larger sizes of the type. And there's a great comment on this by L.I. (laughs) Pouchet, screaming out for (laughs) March, feeling really confined by these specimen books. But Pouchet, who was a Frenchman, uh, it's actually Louis-Jean Pouchet, moved to London. And uh, this is a great book that he published in 1819, where the, it starts off, instead of recommending his types, he starts off attacking all the other founders. And he starts off by saying, ever since he came to London, he's had a rotten time, people have closed the door in his face, he's worked hard to perfect his own type cutting, but no one has helped him out in the least. And he goes on about, so much for these men possessed of large capitals, If he puts it in full type, and he literally starts shouting at them in the introduction to his book by setting it out and, large, bold capitals. It's really incredible. He actually uses type um, pictographically or, or, you know, uh, to reinforce his his language and starts criticizing and calling down these other founders. And uh, this is him later on in the same book, complaining about the the, the, uh, quarto format. Here's the two-story A. You can see what a misforgotten idea it is to try and fit uh, the old curves of the humanist uh, 15th century pen-drawn letter into this bold uh, monstrous pachyderm-like uh, character and also the teeth suffers too some of them are quite jolly but um for the most part they're disastrous but um and the founders usually don't give this much away as i said earlier the, the typographical sir line is the thing that predominates you can see there's lots of m's and n's even when they're setting them in english here's another one with m's and n's mint and here in this very very large condensed it's called condensed egyptian there was a passion for anything to do with Egypt. Uh, right after uh, the British Expeditionary Forces hounded Napoleon out of Egypt in 1801, the British then started looting Egypt. As you know, they took over all of the stuff the Egyptians, the uh, French, had put together, pulled it back to England in London, and, and there was an Egyptian Hall in Piccadilly where you could see uh, mummies and stuffed mermaids and stuffed monkeys and you know casts of the Rosetta Stone and so on. Um, so. All the new bold types, whether they were sans serif or slab serif, were called Egyptian. And some of the farmers even spelled it T-A-I-N. They weren't quite sure about it. But this one actually uh, is, has the the, uh, the foreshadowing of a clarendon in it. The clarendon is a condensed, bold uh, slab serif form, but it has a little bracket in it. You can see that it's not quite a right angle in there. It's just a little curve And this an attempt here, I don't know what's going on, but it's an attempt to some modeling to the letter. When it's blown up like this, you can see how truly horrible this little conjunction of, of strokes is right there. Um, but nevertheless, this is a, a foreshadowing of the Clarendon form, which came in around 1856. This is about 1846, about 10 years before. And then the Clarendon was, was considered very, very expeditious for newspaper printing because it was a bolder type and would withstand a lot of abuse, a lot of printing. And was was readable. It was a dark and readable typeface. <laughs> now there's a bargain. <laughs> not uh, not bad. What are they twelve quid each or something? No, about fifteen quid. <laughs> My rhythm takes off. So this is uh, this is thorough, but also here he is really savoring, you know, chewing over his success. And here, the, sometimes the slab serifs were also called antique. There was just complete confusion of categories. Uh, there was no reason f- for the founders to copy the, each other's uh, names. You know, they copied the type, but then they give it a different name. So uh, the first sans serif of William Caslon, in 1816 was also called uh, antique, as with some of these slab serif types. And here's a wonderful antique open, which has a very unusual kind of, of highlighting, inlining, sort of like, uh, cr- the chrome lettering that you see advertising new cars has the same kind of uh, sort of flickering appeal. Again, the a little disaster here. And fortune smiling on the lottery. Here's a couple more lottery uh, quote texts. This one's in Nicolet Gray's wonderful book, 19th century decorated typefaces, and it's from Caslon. Fortunate adventures in the state lottery to cure the successful speculators' mansions and equipages, parts, etc., etc., etc. And then later on, they admit, in the state lotteries now wisely abolished by the legislature, the chances were so greatly against the adventurers that, according to the schemes, the purchaser of the whole lottery would lose half his money. Is that true? Few, therefore, but the imprudent, the inconsiderate, and the desperate became buyers of tickets and shares. Should the exigencies of the nation render the revival of lotteries necessary, it is suggested that by making the chances more equitable, it's a great way of the nation that if the government, instead of a profit of one half, would be contended with a six RN. So a little editorial by in there. Um, and they would still gleefully yell on about the lotteries, although they would be pretending that it was you know, ruining the nation The hyphenation is an interesting point in the type specimen books because in order to make the books look smooth and even, particularly in the large sizes, they would dispense with hyphenation and just break words wherever they ended. So you would see a fragment of a word not broken anywhere like a syllable or a logical place and carried on to the next line. Uh, Starting as early as 1812, 1816, all of the founders started doing it and nobody even, you know, batted an eyelash. They would just dispense with hyphenation altogether, which is a great idea. It never caught on with fritters though made nice, even columns of text. This one, and that thorough good again, the lottery draws, Numidian type, I can only assume as a reference to the Egyptian collections or the African collections of the British Museum, which they were hastily stuffing in there with uh, with some of their, their wealth and some of their explorers. Unusual photograph, but. <laughs> it's a, it's a, this is a black and white taken here, uh, that's, uh, actually looks, that's my thumb, and that's Francis Butler's right hand. And then uh, I printed the negative, and while I was printing the negative, I put my hands on the film to keep it flat. That's so the film doesn't have it. And then I need to make a slide, so I took a slide of the, of the paper print that I made from the negative. So we've got black and white hands, negative hands, and then real hands. You see my hands a lot cleaner here than, than here, but as usual, I'm digressive. <laughs> Here's the, uh, this is really how they, they felt that, they, that the people's senses had been kidnapped by this damn thing. <laughs> and again, the word has been chosen for the typographical sirloin and also to show off these wonderful, the ball termini here on the N and the N and the A. And then this nicely scooped out, hollowed out uh, letters in the Italian. This one I really like, the random medium. And again, it's, you know, it's typographical sirloin. yan yeah, man More typographical <laughs> sirloin. These are from uh, Bauer Bake in 1830. And it's that, a wonderful kerning job they've done on the YA there. That's really superb. And this is one of those books you can read through, and it's all word fragments like meant and yan yeah, man and so on. And it, it has a sort of Dadaistic cohesion. You know, it doesn't sound any worse than Hugo Ball or uh, Kurt Schwitter's. Mm-hmm. <laughs> this is thorough good hum and also fun on the next page. And then this is another uh, endless series of great one word, very short three letter words that all have M's and N's in and... Oh, this is the same bride. This is the table in the same bride. So I guess Boulder could be sociable. I don't know. Is that some kind of a cocktail patter? Um, these are, the, these are now reverse types, as you can see, that are nicely fitted together with little end pieces. Now, this is Darius Wells in New York. And now we're in the late 1830s in the introduction of wood cast letters that big in lead. And also, to uh, pick them up, a font of type would weigh a ton um, if it was you know three inches high and uh, something like this. So first of all, they experimented with a version of sand casting and just casting the face of the letter and then mounting it onto wood onto a wood body. Uh, and then they went all the way and made solid wood type. And pretty soon printers got over the prejudice and the fear that the t- wood type would break down. And so the, uh, the American founders particularly start to mass uh, market and manufacture these new wood types. And here's some very interesting uh, little uh, shapes and, and curlicues going on in these letters, the shadow outline letter here. This is George Nesbit and Son, a New York founder from 1838, the giant wood type. This is again another poetic specimen, lots of great one word poems. It's interesting that the, these one word poems are about 100 years, or about 110 years before the, uh, there was a movement of minimalist poetry in New York in the 60s, who also wrote one word poems. This one is, is incredible because they misspelled it. I guess they're trying to say founder. I'm not sure. There's a lot, a lot of, of typos. And they're, they're so sloppy that the typos stay in the, in the subsequent editions of the books. Sometimes they would just print up a lot of leaves of the book. And then when they ran out of specimens, they'd add their new types and print up some more and just add the leaves together. So it's very hard to date the types because of this practice of, of just leaving the type standing. Thurgood, for example, in all of his books, reprints pages that Thorne had set up um, 40, 50 years before. But... Um, Occasionally, they'll correct the typo, and sometimes they probably don't even notice it. This is an extremely strange type. It looks like it's sort of buried in the sand uh, with a long, long uh, sunset shadow coming through it or something. It's very strange. And usually, they would, they would uh, also make a, another little jibe in the specimen. Uh, for example, the English founders have the same type, and they would set up a fake newspaper headline saying, Northumberland Intelligencer. As if to imply that the people in the weren't quite as smart, and they had this sort of weird, backward-looking type. Someone's always gets a laugh. <laughs> this is the Italian style of type, and this—they reverse everything. The, the weight of modern type is reversed to the horizontal rather than the, the vertical, and I can only assume it's a slur on Italy. I can't imagine any other reason for calling it Italian. I guess Italians were were, were unpopular. Uh, back in the 1830s and 40s, but this is truly a disgusting letter and particularly the, the shaded version. And these uh, strange little flanges or serifs that are working out here, really grotesque. Still, I'd like to get a fond of it. <laughs> here's, here's what I think is the uh, visually most beautiful specimen of the 19th century. There's a copy here. It's the 1838 uh, Wood and Sharwoods specimen of the Austin Letter Foundry. Richard Austin died about 1821 The specimen came out 17 years later, and it's not known to what extent he's responsible for these types, probably none at all, because most of these kinds of types came into popularity after his death in 1821. So some some unknown type cutter uh, designed these incredible display types. There's a whole book of them. They're really fabulous. And you notice that they emphasize metal bodies. They're not metal faces on wood bodies. These are solid metal types. And they're truly magnificent. They're the bold, uh, mostly bold modern faces with a drop shadow. Some of them are, have other have little attachments like this one, which is great, great, leads on it. And unfortunately, because these types never sold, no, f- no fonts exist, and we don't have any record of any of the other letters. We could, you know, we could extrapolate what the other letters look like based on these, but um, I suspect that they only cut the three letters for the specimen and then waited for orders to come in. And a lot of them, you know, didn't sell. It's really a phenomenal book. This one, I think, is truly magnificent. And uh, I've never ever seen anywhere, in any example of printing, or in any type specimen collection, any other letters than these three letters. You see them reprinted quite often, but it's always these same three. And, you know, you could draw the the P, uh, you could probably come up with most of the letters, but, you know, you still have to conjecture quite a bit. Also, you have to be a great artist to come up with this great style. This is actually very much like Austin's style, the wood, the wood engraving style that you may remember from that William Miller title page, but uh, it may just be someone that, that apprenticed to Austin that actually cut these types. This one is so modern, it's astounding. It reminds me of Formica Sink with chrome edging, this great little uh, sort of mitered corners. I mean, it really has this three-dimensional look to it, sort of lifting off the page there. And they all say RAM or rug or rum. There's a, this is another real gem. Of course, there was no copyright protection, so um, a lot of these types were plagiarized, particularly transatlantically. The Boston uh, Letter Foundry was in London, and no doubt uh, they shipped their specimen out to printers in, in uh, New York and Philadelphia that would buy type from them, but immediately those specimens arrived. The American printers would set to work to copy the types. They would either redraw them or they would buy a font of the type and, and cast, make uh, stereotypes, and then recast them. And you can tell because the recast types don't have all the fine lines. They start to fill in. Uh, the, 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 uh, this one was copied by um, uh, Nesbit, I believe. Either Nesbit or, uh, yeah, I think it was, yeah, Nesbit copied this one. Um, right after this came out, this is 1838, I think about 1842, Nesbitt made a copy of this type. And it doesn't have all these fine little lines. There's a lot of filling in going on there. So you can tell that they just made casts, lead, lead molds, and then just recast the letters, you know, bought a font, and then just ripped them off. So it's still a problem. There's still uh, real copyright problems in type design. This is a Tuscan, which became popular right around 1856, and a truly uh, amazing statement. And here's a really incredible sort of Art Deco one. I mean, this is 100 years before Art Deco. And, uh, or it even has sort of other overtones going on in there. This is another one that was plagiarized heavily by other founders. <coughs> sort of looks like fabric or wallpaper samples. And here's one of the absolute gems. This is their, <coughs> I guess, their condolences for people who didn't win the lottery. <laughs> <coughs> Lovely little uh, brick card lettering and the way the shadow echoes the the uh, yeah. outlines of the bricks too I think it's really wonderful so that goes on for pages and pages now I want to change uh, rapidly here to a, a later trend, and this is the advent of nonsense poetry in, in type specimens and uh, there's a strong tradition of course in English literature from uh, Jonathan Swift the, the nonsense language used by the, the Huyen hymns and the Leputians, um Horace Walpole Uh, wrote a story, um, wrote a collection of stories that have nonsense in them. Uh, um, Derry Down Derry, which of course is Edward Lear, wrote all those great nonsense poems. And Lewis Carroll was probably the one that immediately preceded this specimen. It's the epitome specimen of the Caslon uh, and Glasgow letter foundry, London, 1860. And uh, this is totally intriguing. There's pages and pages of stuff. Some of it are just typographical errors. You know, the the uh, printer's, his collection of his favorite typos, maybe. But then there's, uh, like, Dermon State is a good one. Maybe like, we're going to Dermon State a thing. Um, but then there's things like a tad. what's a nicer tad? Or something that's being trickled. So it intermix with, you know, gray, and mint, which is a, mint has been handed down. It's now one of those sort of totemic words that all the founders are using. Uh, we get mon I mean, they sound like real words, and I keep, keep looking for dictionaries that'll have these words in them, you know, and I, um, maybe, you know, in Borges's library, I can find all these words somewhere, and they'll be explained to me, but i I sent this list to a uh, former MI5 cryptographer who couldn't deal with it, uh, people who do the London Times crossword puzzle every day within a half hour, you know, they just, they same, it's a flash, it's a, you know, a flash of clarity there, a new song, uh, you name Trompier, sounds French, you know, but it's not in a French dictionary. Uh, Daisler prantings. Now we're, prantings. Now I can tell what prantings are. I mean, that's that's an easy one. But we moderate, but then there's the moderato, and then there's demi-poderne. You know, are you are you truly demi-poderne? And here's more of them. You know, <laughs> sure not, Hermione. Redburn. Uns dem oh, It sort of sounds German, but. Or, I try to think about it in other ways. Now, this is an English founder, and Birmingham people from Birmingham in England tend to call it Birmingham, you know, Birmingham. So this could be green Birmingham, something that somebody from Birmingham would know. You know, he said green Birmingham, they would know what you were talking about. So only so, well, a If you sort of put it into an English dialect, it sort of starts to make sense. But then you run into retarded changes. You know, it's like, so why, why try and, and extrapolate some other? Linguistic uh, root for it. And then we have this poetic cremantile for measures. You know, this is, it's so uh, crystal refreshment rooms mentioned in these arrangements. It's so poetic, it's so clear that you, obviously the guy is just one, he's the, a great, you know, he's a great poet, he's a great visual artist. Them or, well, it's them or us, of course. So you can start to, you start to decipher these things, is fun. But then Maratuskte, I maybe mean, this is an obscure Indian tribe, you know, like the, the Algonquin or the Schenectady or something, you know. <laughs> on the toss come on. You try and read them backwards. You try and read them forwards. You try and anagramatize them. They've got to have some meaning. Portantem cerealos, It sounds, you know, it's, you know it's a Spanish waiter maybe. You know, something, you know. What could it be? It's, it's got the concision of the, of the horse racing form. Anyone who's ever tried to read, you know, like a horse racing form will realize that there's this kind of thing going on in there too there's a sort of telegramic urgency to it threads of it um, I just wish I knew you know I had more of a context to figure this out I just I can't penetrate really what's going on in here it's just it's, it's totally engrossing it really is there are only four pages that are this wild but all through the book there are these little uh, flashes of it uh, one of them is beard Ron and I think it's a self portrait I think the guy's name is Ron and he has a beard Does it that make sense beard Ron so he's, He's, he's putting himself in there. Maybe his name's Fred, I don't know. But anyway, uh, the Caslon Foundry um, really outdid themselves with this specimen. And this is 1860. And right about the same time in America, uh, Thomas McKellar, who was a poet, went to work, well actually in 1850, he went to work for the L. Johnson Foundry in Philadelphia. And he's the, he's the grandpappy of, of Gonzo, of this stream of consciousness where you put everything and anything into the type specimen. And um, that's actually, That's actually taking us quite out on a longer tangent, which I'll talk about in a minute. I just want to end up with a couple of sort of more rational thoughts here. And that is that um, the Bruce specimen of 1880 is one of the first, although it looks mad, it's one of the first to start to approach a real understanding of printing history and the role of the press in more than speculative terms. And um, Bruce's specimen was written by Theodore lowe DeVinny. And DeVinny was uh, here in New York Working at his own press and worked in close relationship with Bruce's sons. And in order to get access to their foundry for the realization of his own work, he wrote the text for their specimen. First of all, it starts off with his higgledy-piggledy uh, facts and, and parts of words about printing. Uh, Gutenberg, Files Press of, of Glasgow, of course, get nicely broken over into two parts here. Scott a large type, I guess Bruce being a Scot, is patriotic. Art. Barbu. Sort of, you know, scattershot, John Faust, Menz, 1450, dip, dip, din. Sort of firing these things at you. But it starts to approach more of a coherence. And there's actually, in the second edition of this book, 1882, there is a history of printing by um, Divini that is set out on facing pages in this specimen as a part of the text specimen in changing sizes. But, you know, mostly text sizes, nothing wild like a large display types and so on going on in the middle of it. So this is one of the first specimens to really give a, a consistent a theme and that is of the history of printing. Although as I say, it's very much sort of scattershot. Some of these I've, I've never heard of. Arachio de Egregious Typographiae promotis. That sounds like a good one. Fournier's uh, Manuel Typographie. Scriblomanias is a very nice topic uh, type for that. And then here's some more scattershot, just sort of snippets, you know. Book signatures first used by Anthony Zarat, I guess that's Antonio Zarato, Milan, 1470. And then the correctors at Plantin's printing office, here's the names of the Plantin's correctors, copied as Raphael Raphael, Raphael, Angius is in there, Lipsius. Catchwords first used by Reginald de Spira, Venice, 1469, Sebastian Griffius at Lyon, 1528. So it's just sort of little fragments, little ideas. He's in the print shop and he's just sort of spouting out little bits of sort of vague erudition and, and that's sort of gathered together into uh, this massive Bruce specimen book. It's a beautiful book. It's very, very large and uh, it's about 450 pages and they put out supplements to it from about 1880 to 1882 and um, the one specimen that, that really takes the cake as a forerunner of, of concrete poetry is the um, Chicago-type foundry specimen and this is Martyr Luzon Company, specimen of candy stamps, 1880 and um, Roger Levinson, uh, who's an old, old San Francisco printer, was here at Columbia looking through the, uh, the ATF collection and he called a, a Martyr Lou's book and stuck to the back of it was this other book because the, I guess it has a vellum binding or something and the books are just stuck together. And he had no idea this book was, was in the library and I'm sure nobody else did either. It's the only known copy and it's an incredible work of concrete poetry. And he has this incredible pages of powder patterns Uh, And these are for stamping candies, the kind of candies you still see in the store love hearts. The kids buy, you know, the kids swallow these uh, credulous messages, will you, want you kind of stuff. Um, But look at that, a page. I mean, that is pure concrete poetry. Uh, That is to say concrete poetry as it was envisaged in the 1950s and 60s by the Neugandru group in Brazil and then the the other groups that, that caught on to it, most of whom used the typewriter and most of whom were very, very limited to the typeface of the typewriter and the, the grid of the typewriter in producing their work. And so they always have this sort of static, stoicadon on look to them. But also in this book of candy stamps are wonderful little, these are large too, wonderful little uh, <coughs> snippets of popular culture. This is a page of Katzenjammer dialect. I dank so What's the reason with you? This pages of Yiddish. This this pages of, of Irish. Was yet Finnegan's Way? Uh, kiss me, Kate. Okay, Holy Mother, you're a sweet one, and all this sort of stuff. And it's it's really uh, a great index of the of the uh, the sort of mixture of, of immigrant culture that was going on in, in New York around 1860 to 1880. All of the dialects and the fact that everybody would be conversant, everybody would know a little bit of this Hans, Hans, the Bend, the Goben, the That's by name. This kind of the sort of bar humor of, of the period, which was turned into these. Uh, these little stamps, which were then printed on candy, and they're not very well set. In fact, it's full of typos, but I mean, you can't tell if there's a typo in this. If you don't go out, it gets me a police. Well, what will? Christmas um, is thought so. There's pages and pages of this stuff, and it really is incredible. Um, the, the whole area of, of uh, sociology that is presented for, uh, for excuse the dirty expression, Okay, well, finally, I just want to throw in a couple more because, obviously, I've, I've only just scratched the surface here. And um, the gonzo style that I mentioned... <laughs> Merry Christmas, please, we met. The gonzo style I mentioned was this um, absolute non-stop babble of uh, the life of the tramp printer, the printer who would come into town, go to a print shop say, you know, you got a, got a job for a reliable printer, and the guy would say, well, are you temperant You know, yes, yes, sir, I sure am. as your type stick, and the guy would set type, you know, all week, and he'd be really fast, he set type like lightning, and he would tell the young apprentices' stories about all the print shops he worked at. Friday night, he'd get his pay, go out, get blind drunk, and they wouldn't see him again. And he would wake up, you know, and he'd get on a train somewhere, and he'd wake up in the next town, and some of them were running away from dead or broken hearts or whatever, and Others of them were just on kind of sad trajectories. Who knows what they were looking for. But um, the type specimen books from 1865, this is uh, Cleveland type currently of 1882, from then onward are an incredible uh, pastiche of newspaper articles, spurious want ads, uh, personal confessions, fake social circulars, um, bits of real news, bits of of, of, uh, uh, etymology, all the kind of scrap erudition that a printer would have at his disposal. And I'm not even going to go into that, but if any of you are interested, this is a plug. Thursday night, I'm giving a performance at the Center for the Book, which is somewhere in New York, I'm not sure where, uh, called An Evening with a Tramp Printer, when I recreate uh, the life of one of these characters entirely from specimen text. The whole, my performance is entirely taken from uh, type specimens from 1880 to 1890, and tells the story of these Poor unfortunate creatures. And um, my favorite of all the pages is finally, is this one, which is the Fellowship of Bohemian Scribes announcing an hour for simultaneous writing throughout the world. Uh, I uh, I hope that it is rapidly enacted. And if you have any questions, I'll be happy to. Try and answer them. Thank you.